Welcome to everyone. I'm so glad we could be here today. I'm so glad we were able to make it here, that the roads were plowed, that we were able to get through everything. We had to cancel our Good Friday service, so I'm really glad that we were able to do Easter. And welcome to those of you who are joining us online. I'm so glad you could be here today. I want to just read us a quick little passage from Luke 24 to celebrate what we are celebrating today, what we're here for, Easter. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here he has risen. And you say? Very good. Well, I'm so glad to be with you guys today. Today we are on the final part of our First Corinthians series. We are finishing off the book today. And I don't know about you, but this book has been an amazing experience. When we started this series, I said that if you told me that I could only have one book from the Bible... I would choose a gospel. But if you told me I could have two, I would choose 1 Corinthians. Because this book is like a miniature Bible all in itself. I, uh, I was hanging out with some friends a couple weeks ago. We went for wings to celebrate my buddy's birthday. And we're all Christian guys, so inevitably our topics turned to faith and different things that affected our lives. And it was like every topic that came up, oh, I just preached on that. Because 1 Corinthians just touches all sorts of things. And I hope that this book has been a similar experience for you, where you've found in a new way just how relevant the Bible is to your own life in all kinds of situations. So today, we're going to finish off this series by talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Heavenly Father, it's so good to be in your presence. It's so good to sing your praises together with our brothers and sisters. We pray that you would enlighten us, open our minds, be active in our spirits to hear your word and to be closer to you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It comes right before 2 Corinthians. It should be pretty easy to find. And the chapter is appropriately titled, The Resurrection of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, 
Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. But when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes. Oh, sorry, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. When you sow, when, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds, another. And fish, another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. 
the last, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, imp- does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality." When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The word of our Lord. So I also printed that whole chapter into my notes here, so I have to skip ahead a little bit. Today is Easter. It is the holiest day in the Christian calendar. Not Christmas, Easter. It is when we remember and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This event lies at the center of our Christian faith. The greeting which we shared earlier is an ancient affirmation of this fact. The paschal greeting, as it is called, seems to date back over a thousand years. There is some scholarly debate as to when it became widespread, but seems to have some academic evidence of it being in use for the baptism of St. Augustine in 387 A.D. There's a rather spectacular story in the Christian tradition of Mary Magdalene who, went to, who wept outside the tomb, the first witness of the resurrection and the apostle to the apostles, who stood before the Roman emperor Tiberius and addressed him with these words, Christ is risen. Alleluia. It's not only in the tradition, though. As the Bible gives an account of the earliest Christian movement, the resurrection of Jesus is front and center. In Acts 2, verse 32, we read Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost where he says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. He says this again in verses 23 and 24, and he also makes the resurrection claim in his second sermon in Acts 3, verse 15. Most of the New Testament is made up of the epistles, a series of letters from Christian leaders to various churches. 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament are epistles. And there are 53 references to the resurrection in Paul's letters. What's really interesting about some of the references is that they are thought to be things that Paul is quoting not things that he himself is coming up with. For example, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, is referred to as the Philippians hymn, like what we sing, a hymn, hymn, not hymn. 
who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. As I mentioned, scholars believe that this was an early hymn, a song, which means that Paul isn't the origin of this idea. Think about when this would have been written. Jesus died sometime between 30 and 35 AD. We're not quite sure. And Paul died in the Neronian persecution around AD 65. Philippians is believed to have been written either in the late 50s or the early 60s during one of Paul's stays in a Roman prison. So Paul, writing maybe 30 years after the crucifixion, is quoting this material that was already in existence. And look at the claims that it makes, that Jesus is of the same nature as the Father, that Jesus existed before becoming human, that he died and is being worshipped as God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 7, is also thought to be pre-Pauline. 1 Corinthians is even earlier than Philippians, being dated by most scholars to the early 50s, usually 53 or 54 A.D., Starting in verse 1, Paul makes some commentary. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. It is by this gospel that you are saved. He's reminding us of what that gospel is, and then he quotes for us. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, begin the quote, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I will put forward none of them are still living right now, just to be clear. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then Paul adds himself to the list with verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. One of the things that critical or skeptical scholars often suggest is that the belief in the deity of Christ is a late addition to Christianity. But this passage is even older than Paul's letter on account of it being a creed that he is quoting. In fact, this passage marks the oldest existing list of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. The Gospels were almost certainly written after 1 Corinthians, not long after, mind you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all believed to have been written prior to A.D. 65, but still. Gary Habermas, a noted New Testament scholar and one of the preeminent scholars in this field, claims that the evidence suggests that this creed found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 7, dates from the 30s A.D., just a handful of years or maybe even mere months after the crucifixion. So Christians have always claimed that Jesus rose from the dead. It has been a central core of Christian teaching since the very earliest beginnings of the religion. 
Paul summarizes the centrality of the resurrection in this passage in verses 14 to 17. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But, if he, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But is it true? Did it really happen? Has Christ been raised? Or is our preaching in vain and we are still in our sins? Surely this is the question upon which our lives should hang. And this is one of the things that really differentiates Christianity from other world religions. Look, I'm not in the habit of calling out other religions from, our, from the pulpit. So instead, I'll let you do the math. Pick a religion, any religion. Hold it in your head, right? Pick out the one that you're thinking of. Is there an event, is there something that they claimed happened in history that is the foundation of their faith? Or is that religion basically founded on the idea that their founder had good teachings and that we should follow them? Christianity is not like that. Christianity is not about the teachings of Jesus, though we value them. Christianity is fundamentally about this event that happened, this event that we celebrate this weekend. If Jesus is really God in the flesh, died for our sins and rose from the dead, then that must change everything about how we live. It must change how we love one another and relate to one another. It must change our priorities with how we spend our time and our money. It must change how we see life and death and what comes after death. There are some things of which we can be fairly certain when it comes to the life of Jesus. The crucifixion is one of them. And his burial in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, is attached to that. And if you're curious, his baptism is the other fact that even secular scholars are quite confident about being a historical reality. Now, I am confident about what this book says about the life of Jesus. But what I'm saying is that even if you were like a secular scholar, if you weren't a Christian and you went into academia, they would say these are the things that we can be really confident about, that these things happened. Correlated to the fact of Jesus' death by crucifixion is the fact that his tomb was found empty shortly thereafter and that his disciples then went around claiming to have encountered the risen Christ and spreading a new religion in his name. These are established historical facts. So what really happened? A number of possibilities have been advanced. Some claim that the whole thing was made up by the disciples, that they broke into the tomb and stole the body and then started their grand conspiracy. This claim runs into trouble when you realize what kind of life the disciples lived as a result of their testimony. They did not become wealthy, popular, or secure, in fact, they were persecuted, shunned, reviled, and in the case of 11 of the 12, eventually killed for their proclamation. That the disciples went to their deaths, horrible deaths, on account of a lie that they had crafted and shaped themselves seems wildly unlikely. Well, if it wasn't the disciples who stole the body, maybe it was just generic run-of-the-mill thieves. Well, those would be strange thieves indeed, I mean, grave robbers are a thing, right? Like, that happens. But the thing that they're stealing isn't the body. 
they go into graves to steal the treasures that have been buried alongside the body. In the case of Jesus, he was wrapped in a fine cloth that had been laden with expensive spices and perfumes. It seems highly unlikely that thieves would have taken the worthless body and left behind the only treasures that the tomb had to offer. The other problem that any hypothesis involving theft runs into is the guard posted at the tomb. And there's a, there's a movie that I can recommend on this topic. It's, not a, it's a drama. It's not a documentary. But it's from 2016, so it's pretty recent. It stars Joseph Fiennes. It's called Risen. It's really fun. I recommend it. And it gives a great perspective on this question. But the important thing to know is that this wasn't a guard. Like, this wasn't one guy. It was a group of soldiers. And there's some debate as to whether it was four Roman soldiers or whether it was ten temple guardsmen. But either group would have been highly disciplined and trained killers, put there for the express purpose of keeping that tomb secure. It seems highly unlikely that either a group of random thieves or the discouraged and scattered disciples could break through this guard to snatch the body. Another hypothesis is that this was a hallucination of some kind, that Jesus didn't really appear to all those people, but that they imagined him. But that's just not how hallucinations work. And they certainly don't work as mass events where hundreds of people in a room all experience the same trip. We also have accounts of Jesus being touched and of him eating food after being raised, neither of which are things that an apparition would do. So this doesn't seem like a reasonable explanation either. The answer that seems to be most common among skeptics today is that Jesus simply never existed. Such a claim is not only wrong, it is wildly anti-historical. Jesus stands among the most well-attested characters of ancient history. I am talking about men like Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. Now, don't get me wrong. We have more evidence that Caesar and Alexander were real than we do for Jesus. But as one commentator put it, that's like saying we have more evidence that the moon is round than we do that the earth is round. It's also an incredible comparison. Caesar and Alexander were generals and kings who conquered enormous portions of our world. They founded cities, they minted coins. Caesar wrote his own autobiography, and Alexander was followed by biographers who wrote his story as it happened. Jesus, on the other hand, was an itinerant preacher from a backwater province who left us no written works and who never traveled more than a few hundred miles from the place where he was born that the evidence for Jesus is even remotely comparable to the evidence for Caesar or Alexander tells us that we have a shocking amount of evidence that Jesus lived. From a scholarly and historical perspective, the life and death of Jesus is simply not in question. And I know that's a big claim, so let me quickly lay out some of the evidence. First, let's look at the Bible. It feels like the Bible can be easily dismissed, but let's remember a few things about this book. One, this isn't a book. It's a collection of 66 books. Not all of them are about Jesus, historically speaking, though we might say they're all about Jesus, theologically speaking. But the New Testament, of which Jesus Christ is the primary concern, has nine different authors. So you can't think of this as one source, but as nine. In addition, and perhaps more convincingly, there are also many non-Christian sources that reference Jesus as a real person who lived and died. 
Tacitus, a hugely important Roman historian, references Jesus. Josephus, a Jewish historian, mentions Jesus in several places, as does the Talmud. In fact, the Jewish sources are important because they testify that Jesus performed miracles, though they claim that his power was from an evil source, which is a claim that comes up in the Gospels. It comes up in Matthew 12 and in parallels of Mark 3 and in Luke 11. Thalos was a Greek writer who mentions Jesus, and Mara Barsarapian was a Stoic philosopher. Many other Christian writings from the second century and onward quote pagan writers who were making claims about Jesus. An example of this would be the pagan Trypho, who was being quoted by Justin Martyr, a Christian apologist. Historically speaking, there is a mountain of evidence that Jesus lived, so neither can we simply appeal to the entire story as a fabrication in order to explain away the resurrection. There is one more possible explanation for what happened that Sunday morning, almost 2,000 years ago. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. This makes sense because of the unrivaled life that Jesus had already lived. He was already a known miracle worker. He had already made multiple predictions to his disciples about his coming death and resurrection. He had even made claims to deity. And it explains the sudden explosion of Christianity in the years that followed, not just around the Mediterranean, but in Jerusalem, the very city in which Jesus was crucified and buried. Anyone skeptical of the empty tomb could have walked over and been back in time for lunch and put any discussion to rest. But they didn't put it to rest. The religion kept growing, and the detractors could do nothing except attempt to silence those who proclaimed it. So, what will you do? If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything must be different. We must change how we live, how we die, how we love. If Jesus really rose from the dead, and I believe that he did, then you can have a brand new start today. You can have a new life with God, and when this life is over, we can have eternity in his presence. This is the choice that we must all make. How will you answer? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Easter. Lord, thank you that we worship a God who walked this earth, whose feet left prints, whose hands touched bodies, that we worship a God who became a man who interacted with, all, with history, that this is something that we can look up and we can understand, not only in our hearts but in our minds, God. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the testimony that it leaves to us. We pray, Lord, that we would live up to the testimony that has been left, that our testimony would rise to glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.